How does China view the war in Ukraine? Today, we'll be talking about Chinese-Russian relations, China's relationship with the EU and the United States. We'll also talk about how China's managing COVID inside of China. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking with Tings Chak. She is a researcher at the Tricontinental Institute. She's also a member of the Dongsheng News Collective and the author of Serve the People, The Eradication of Extreme Poverty in China. Tings Chak, welcome to The Socialist Program. Thanks for having me here. Tings, you are a researcher at Tricontinental Institute. You work with Dongsheng News Collective. You're also the author of this amazing book, Serve the People, The Eradication of Extreme Poverty in China. Just talk very briefly about this work that you did, the study, perhaps the greatest, most impressive anti-poverty program in the history of the human race. Yeah, absolutely. China announced this great achievement that it successfully eradicated extreme poverty in the countryside. And of course, this, you know, over the last 40 years or so, this adds up to about 850 million people who exited extreme poverty. And that's definitely one of the greatest achievements, not only for China, but really something for humankind. And in large part, thanks to the socialist construction process. But it's interesting that how little this campaign was talked about in the West or in mainstream media and lesser known to the global South and peoples that would you know, really benefit to learn from the experiences, the history. And so we had a chance to go down to Guizhou, which is a historically quite poor province, to visit some of the places and meet some of the people who were involved in the campaign, whether they were you know, part of the party or they were people who were peasants working in the countryside, people who were lifted or lifted themselves out of poverty. With that experience and quite a lot of research on the literature, both in English and in Chinese, we were able to write this short study. I hope to be able to have time to come back and talk about China's efforts because right now we're focusing on Chinese foreign policy and its relations with Russia and the U.S. and the EU. But of course, even its foreign policy has an anchor, and that anchor, of course, for China is the development of China, meaning lifting the Chinese people out of poverty, ending the the legacy of underdevelopment and the legacy of forced impoverishment, especially in the 19th century. So I want to be able to come back to that. But let's start with Russia, the Ukraine war, how China views it. On February 4th, the Russians and the Chinese, both foreign ministries, issued a 5,000-word long statement announcing their strategic partnership. They said it was a relationship without limits, I believe is, I don't know if it's a correct translation, but it's certainly been cited many, many times in the Western media. And then 20 days later, Russia carries out what it calls a special military operation in Ukraine, what's known in the West as Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And afterwards, there were resolutions at the United Nations condemning Russia. China did not vote no China abstained, along with 34 other countries. And it brings us to the kind of fundamental contradiction for China, because China has a strategic partnership that has evolved with Russia. At the same time, Ukraine's biggest trading partner, by far, is China. So clearly, China doesn't want to sever or end its relationship with Ukraine or Poland or the EU countries. Let's just talk about what this means for China's foreign policy when the Russians moved into Ukraine and how China is actually sort of projecting its own diplomatic pose. 
war is absolutely brutal and not something to be condoned. And, and I don't think that's in question here, nor is it in the question of China's foreign policy. And even looking at China's abstention vote in the UN was not a vote in favor, let's say, along with you know 52 other countries that did not vote to condemn Russia. But that doesn't mean it's a vote in favor of military intervention. It's much more complicated than that. And you mentioned the limitless or without limits strategic partnership was announced and shortly before the conflict really erupted in Ukraine. But I think what's important to note that as much as I think a lot of the pundits and and fears were saying that China and Russia would automatically enter into a military partnership, that's not exactly how it follows. You know, China doesn't actually align on Russia on, on all things. And in fact, not only is China Ukraine's largest trading partner, but it's also Russia's largest trading partner. And it's been for about a dozen years. So as much as, you know, probably the two countries have never reached this height of closeness and their strategic partners, there are differences in foreign policy. And I think it's important to also note that, you know, China hasn't provided arms, but has has looked at a different way. It's looked at actually humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. It's maintained a consistent dialogue with really all in a kind of mediating role. So there's a a lot of elements in here that we can probably elaborate on. Yeah. I mean, when we think back through history, Russia or the previously the Soviet Union had a very, very important relationship with the People's Republic of China at the moment that the People's Republic of China was created back in 1949. Mao went to Moscow. He met with Stalin It was there for many months, actually. It was the only time Mao actually left China. And after months of deliberations, they signed a friendship treaty, and it became the sort of the axis, I would say, or the alliance around which a new stage in political history opened up. And we call that the Cold War. Some people call it the global class war. Socialist and communist parties representing the working class and poor peasants weren't simply representing people who were victims. They had achieved state power. And so between the Soviet Union and China and North Korea, North Vietnam, the countries of Eastern and Central Europe, that's about two-fifths of the world's population formed what was then called the socialist camp. That was in the 1950s. And then that socialist camp started to unravel It unraveled sort of and fragmented over different issues. But over time, there was the development of the Sino-Soviet split, the political ideological split that ultimately led to a state-to-state dispute. And that entire political constellation was shifted. So now we had, in the last 10 years or 15 years, the reemergence of a Russian-Chinese relationship. And so a lot of people in the West, and you mentioned pundits in particular, sort of note this historical symmetry or appearance of symmetry with the opening stage of the Cold War and the beginning of what might be called two camps or two blocks. But you can see clearly in terms of Chinese foreign policy orientation, it's formed a partnership with Russia but it's actually trying very hard to avoid a repetition of the division of the world into blocks where you sort of stick with your ally no matter what. Let's just talk about that a little bit and China's own independence in its foreign policy. I mean, I think linked to this history is the really core value that I think China has developed its foreign policy around. And and that's the principle of non-interference and and the respect for national and territorial sovereignty. And that really came out in the, you know, mid-1950s, early 60s, and especially in the non-aligned era, where non-interference was one of what's considered the five principles of peaceful coexistence. And I think that name still rings true in terms of how China approaches its foreign policy. And of course, that was spearheaded by the great you know, statesman, the great internationalist, really, and former premier, Zhou Enlai. Just as a little bit of context, I mean, this was really forged out of experience of the country's own suffering due to war and, you know, a century of humiliation, which is essentially a century of imperialist occupation, intervention, looting, and just absolute brutality. 
And, you know, in the course of the Second World War, and I think in the hegemonic account of World War II history, often don't count the 27 million Soviet lives, but as well as the 20 million Chinese lives that were lost in fighting Japanese fascism, including territories earlier in the period with, you know, Hong Kong and Macau, where both my family is from, were seated. So I just wanted to mention this to have a larger historical sense of of why non-interference and non-military engagement has been so key in China's foreign policy and I think what it's actively trying to promote in terms of creating spaces of dialogue, trying to position itself in a more mediating position and not trying to enter a kind of new Cold War type of dynamic. And I would like to say, because you, you mentioned in terms of the strategic relationship, just some elements that help our conversation of where the China-Russia kind of alliances really are. And I would say they're in three main categories. First is the consolidation of the energy agreements and energy trade, you know, where, of course, we know Russia as the big producer and all kinds of energy, whether it's natural gas, coal, petrochemicals. And just the news came in, you know, two days ago of the April numbers, just to give a sense. And the imports from Russia reached a record high in China, reaching almost $9 billion. So it is in terms of at the economic level, especially in terms of energy, it's at an all-time high. The second aspect of this partnership is around bilateral trade. And it's also hitting record levels, especially during the last two years. And the third area that's really linked to what's happening geopolitically is the process of de-dollarization, especially in the de-dollarization of trade between the two countries. Just to give a sense is that in 2020, already 45% of the trade was in RMB and only 14% were in U.S. dollars. And that's been a process really of this closeness between the two countries on this economic trade and energy levels. But that doesn't necessarily mean on all aspects of foreign policy and in terms of military approaches. And that's what we're seeing in Ukraine. Um, Of course, the vote, as you mentioned in the UN, is because also China understands that, you know, there's an aspect behind the condemnation of Russia that doesn't account for the role of NATO. And it's obviously U.S.-backed during the last years of its eastward expansion. So in that sense, it's very consistent with China's foreign policy on respecting territorial sovereignty and also that strategic sense and the security that threats that Russia is also facing. Right. I think that's so important. And I'm encouraging people to actually go back and study, read and study the 5,000-word-long statement that was issued by the two governments on February 4th. And when you read it carefully, of course, it's as any diplomatic document, it's written with a certain degree of euphemistic language, so you have to read between the lines a little bit. But the first many paragraphs are about obviously aimed at the United States and what is described as an attempt by some unnamed country, of course, it's the United States, trying to impose its will on the people of the world, impose its form of democracy on other people in the world, acting in a unilateral way. The statement emphasizes over and over again that there's international law. It's based on the United Nations Charter meaning not an international rules-based order, which the United States writes the rules and everybody else is supposed to follow them. In a way, it's sort of a grievance. It's a manifesto of grievance against the existing world order, meaning the unilateral power of the United States. And so in that sense, you can see that this alliance isn't based on all things, and it's certainly not based as an ideological pact The Russian government is not led by a communist party, and the Chinese government is. So it's really quite specific in a way. And I think that's the thing that you're getting at, is that there are elements or areas that require them, or at least their perception was that required them to form a strategic partnership. But it is, in fact, not a blank check. And also in the February 4th statement, there's an obvious condemnation, in essence, of NATO and sort of an acknowledgement that Russia's legitimate security concerns are being threatened by the expansion of NATO, 
because the expansion of NATO into Ukraine means that advanced nuclear and conventional missiles with a flight time of just a few minutes to the Russian targets will be placed all along Russia's border. So China is acknowledging that Russia has a legitimate beef and that they need to have security. At the same time, just your opinion, while recognizing all of that, it certainly wouldn't have been the outcome that China wanted for there to be a military intervention on the part of Russia, or so it seems to me based on everything we've read and based on some of your comments. So let's just explore that a little bit more if we could. No, I think you're you're correct in saying the sort of he who shall not be named in, in the document of the strategic alliance. And I think because both countries, I think, have gotten unprecedentedly closer given the expansion of NATO, of also U.S. foreign policy that have been strategically focusing on China and Russia. And of course, there's a sort of a realization and, and seeing this, you know, promise and, and your show and both Breakthrough News have covered greatly what's happening uh, with the Ukraine crisis. You know, the promise of a not moving one inch eastward, I think it was, was never adhered to. And in fact, you know, NATO's membership has only doubled in the 20 years following when it really should have been dismantled. And of course, this, I think China is seeing that as well, because there is a process of the so-called globalization of NATO rather than a retreat of NATO. I mean, just a few days ago, South Korea was invited in the cybersecurity alliance of NATO. And so that expansion is continuing to increase and consolidate. And just last month, you know, there were about 40 countries gathering in Germany just to discuss, you know, the export of arms to Ukraine. So both countries are clearly following this quite closely. And as you said, China is not interested in a military engagement that's been consistent in its policy. And this puts it in a tough situation. There's no doubt about it. So we have to continue monitoring how this will be and if, in fact, China can play some type of mediation role in this process for a political solution. One of the great concerns that Russia has is that not only is the U.S. moving ever closer to Russia and placing or will place and has placed advanced weapons with, you know, really high technology weapons with Russia as their target, meaning Russian political offices, military offices, government installations. The U.S. can put thousands of missiles targeting Russia all along its border. But at the same time, the U.S. has developed missile defense shields programs in Romania and in Poland. Those are first strike weapons. Those are only useful if you've already attacked the enemy, destroyed 95% of the enemy's missiles, and then you're catching the remnants in the missile defense shield. At the same time, and in the last few years, especially since President Obama announced the so-called pivot to Asia, which he did from Australia and a few other places in 2011, the U.S. has built the THAAD system in South Korea, since you mentioned South Korea. The THAAD system is a missile defense shield. And the U.S. said, well, we have to get it for North Korea, the threat posed by North Korea, which is, it's a joke. I mean, North Korea's military budget is smaller than the New York City Police Department budget. But that aside, this is a high-altitude missile defense shield. Those missiles wouldn't be coming from North Korea to South Korea. It's obviously against China. And so China must feel that if the United States and NATO expansion succeeds in completely undermining Russia's security, or if the United States were to succeed in toppling the Russian government, which I think is clearly one of the goals now of the U.S. in the Ukraine war, is to keep the war going until the Russian government would be toppled, the Chinese must view this as, well, we're next. So you have a situation where China wasn't in support of the invasion, wasn't approving it, abstaining at the UN, but has to be, I would say, principally worried that if the United States succeeds and the United States wants to win the war in Ukraine and go forward with NATO expansion and all of these missile defense shields, which are first strike technologies, that China indeed will be next. 
Absolutely. I mean, if you just look at sort of a map of the military bases and the military operations surrounding, you know, in the Pacific Islands surrounding China, you, if you were China, you would also be afraid. And I think in addition to sort of the non-interference policy of China, it's really a defensive military policy. And I think there's a lot of speculation about the increases of China's military spending, but you have to look at where that's precisely being spent. It's on the defensive capabilities, whether it's through its Navy, its Air Force, its supersonic weapon system, or a variety of weapon system to modernize its military, looking at this sort of encirclement and looking at what is happening with Russia and the eastward expansion of NATO. And I think one of the aspects, however, I think it's lesser known, is China's military spending is really quite small compared to a country like the U.S. And you'll see how sort of imbalanced this type of military comparison is. Just as a percentage of the GDP, I was just looking into this, China's military budget is about 1.2% of its GDP. So it's about $230 billion US dollars that were spent last year. This is actually not only lower than the US, which is about 3.4% of its GDP. At I think the last time I checked, it keeps going up. I think it's about $800 billion a year now, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. But the Chinese military budget is actually quite a bit lower than the global average, which sits around 2.6% of the GDP. And I think it's interesting for us to have a look at both what is the military forces created for, how the military actions are on the international field, and also put it into perspective of really the military powers at stake. Yeah, very, very important for people to do that. So what you're talking about is if you compare in absolute terms, not as a percentage of GDP, but in absolute numbers, the People's Republic of China is spending somewhere in the range of $230 billion. The United States this year is spending $800 billion. That doesn't count, by the way, the money that's in the Department of Energy and in intelligence services. That brings the number to about a trillion. But there's a lot of talk here. I'm in New York City part of the time in Washington, a lot of talk about the U.S. needs to double its military budget. That would bring it to $1.6 trillion. And again, when you look at Russia's military budget, it's even less than China's. It's about $60 billion or $63 billion. That would make it about 6 or 7% or maybe 8% at the most of what the U.S. spends. So these are important numbers. And again, things, China, when you look at Chinese history, it's never, even before the revolution, even during all the different periods where China was an ascendant and actually dominant economic power in the world, it wasn't really an expansionist power. It never had, as Western colonialism or Western capitalism had, this drive for global expansion, global domination, colonies, wars. That just isn't part of the Chinese history. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we can look at a more recent history and know that this non-expansion and non-interference policy is something that actually goes back really centuries and has never been part of even in the era of the previous dynasties and the imperial periods was never actually the domination method of China. So I think in some ways there's a deep cultural legacy of the spirit of non-interference and non-militaristic interventions. So, Ting, when we think about how China views the rest of the world, of course, there is the history of China since the victory of the Chinese Revolution, the period where communism has been in power. But there is this other very long, perhaps longer than any other part of the world, history and culture that informs China's worldview. Let's just talk about how, again, especially for people in the West, people might not understand how this is so impactful in terms of the development of a worldview in the People's Republic of China? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I won't attempt to summarize 5,000 years of history into a short segment, but I think that's important to say, remind us that you know China is one of the oldest civilizations, one of the largest civilizations that ever attempted to put into practice ideas of Marxism. And it's really new. I mean, the first Marxist ideas really came just a bit over 100 years ago at the turn of the 20th century, especially these young uh, revolutionaries that really helped 
were inspired by the end of the last dynasty, which is the Qing dynasty that ended with the Xinhai Revolution in 1911. There was a whole opening up of new ideas, including opening up to ideas that were coming from the West, including Marxist ideas. One of the key innovations and contributions of Chairman Mao was the process of the sinicization of Marxism, putting into practice, testing the theory of Marxism in the realities of China. You know, China's a massive country of not only different religions, different languages, different ethnicities, different people. It's a diversity. I think it's less um, appreciated out in the West. And there's a sort of flattening that happens when it seems to think that, you know, 1.4 billion people with 5,000 years of history would not, you know, take Marxism or take the ideas of socialism and construct in a different way. We have to just remember, you know, the Communist Party is still quite young. It's only celebrated its 100th year last year. These ideas are still very much being tested in this primary stage of construction of socialism that the country is still in. So with that being said, there's sort of, in this long history, I think there's been a sort of consistent approach around looking towards, you know, harmony around peaceful coexistence. And these so ideas linked to, you know, the kind of religious or values-based religions such as Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism, that have a huge, still today, huge influences on the thinking and the actions of the people and the government. Let's bring it back to how China's managing what undoubtedly is a crisis for Chinese foreign policy because Russia is a strategic partner. We've talked about the February 4th statement detailing and reaffirming this partnership. And then 20 days later, Russia's invasion or special military operation in Ukraine. I was looking at some of the Chinese, English language Chinese media from earlier this week This is from CGTN. Chinese President Xi Jinping on Tuesday called for vigilance to prevent the Russian-Ukraine conflict from escalating into a confrontation between blocs, which he said would pose greater and more persistent threats to global security and stability. Xi made the remarks in a phone conversation with French President Emmanuel Macron The two leaders agreed that relevant parties should support Russia and Ukraine to restore peace through negotiations. Now, this article or statement from CGTN goes on at quite a bit of detail. And what's clear is that China is basically making a pitch to France. Be independent. Don't be part of a bloc. You obviously are in NATO, you are in the EU, but France has a long tradition of also being independent. Of course, under Charles de Gaulle, France left NATO. It's back in NATO. But let's just talk about the sort of delicate nature of this diplomatic overtures on the part of China to other leaders in the EU. And it would seem to me that EU is of extreme importance right now for China and obviously for the Belt and Road Initiative. Anyway, let's just talk about all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a very complex web of relationships between the EU and China. And I think one of the aspects on playing a role of sort of mediation and reaching out to various parties is we see not only to France or Germany, to the European Union itself and a variety of partners. There's been many, let's say, phone calls between President Xi or the foreign minister, Wang Yi, with its counterparts. But at the same time, we see interesting developments. Just last year, China surpassed the U.S. to become the EU's largest trading partner. We have also, you know, the years-long negotiations, and we're still sort of waiting to see what will happen given the Ukraine conflict right now and the war that's happening, is the Comprehensive Agreement on Investments, the CAI negotiations between Europe and China. Of course, we're seeing, you know, a moment of huge slowdowns, whether it's the skyrocketing commodity prices, Ukraine being a major supplier of many grains to China. In fact, last year supplied 80% of China's imports of corn. And of course, grain security is a major question in China's food security drive. So both Russia and Ukraine are the major wheat and corn suppliers to China. At the same time, the impacts on BRI, I think, are still yet to be seen. There's huge existing agreements, especially through the rail lines that China has been developing with Europe, Ukraine being one of the kind of important stops in those supply chains. 
At the same time, China's been developing through the BRI heavy logistics routes via Central Asia. So that's, I think, something that we'll have to keep monitoring and seeing what will happen really as the impacts. But it's not in the interests of Europe or the European people and definitely not in the interests of China to see this war extended and prolonged. And as long as I think the U.S. is continuing, you know, we're talking about the military budgets, continuing to ask for even more special funds. I think it was just last week, an additional $33 billion was requested from Biden to supply, you know, military weapons, as well as quote unquote, humanitarian aid to the region, we're not going to see the end, I think, anytime soon. These are really efforts to prolong rather than see a political solution to the situation. Right. I mean, I think the United States is quite happy with the war. They're happy that Russia wasn't able to prevail. I think our view here was that the Russians anticipated that by attacking from the south and the east and the north, that the Ukrainian government might crumble very quickly and that there were other parties in Ukraine who are Ukrainian and who are not necessarily stooges of Russia, but certainly don't want to be hostile to Russia and profess neutrality for Ukraine, want to have good relations with the East and the West. I think the Russians anticipated that this would be a quick war and that they would have a Ukrainian government that they could work with. And if that was the case, China probably would have been content with that outcome, too, because it's not really for China about whether Zelensky, per se, is the leader of Ukraine or another political party. China has a sort of overarching goal, which is to have good relations and normal relations with all of these different governments, not interfere in their internal affairs, and thus have the kind of win-win sort of trade relations that are beneficial to China. But it seems that the calculations of the Russian government were wrong. That's my view, that they thought the Ukrainian government would be toppled quickly. Now we're in a period where there's going to be a protracted war. The U.S. doesn't want peace. They don't want a negotiated settlement. They want to pour more and more weapons. And they want eventually to win, whatever that means. Doesn't mean anything good for Ukrainians, for actual people, for human beings in Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to monitor the situation. I think China is in a very difficult position for some of the aspects we've already mentioned to carry on this sort of strategy of um, maintaining good relations, but at the same time, concretely building multipolarity, particularly in the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, one of the things I think will be interesting to see is that later on this month, China will be hosting, I mean, it's a virtual meeting, BRIC Summit, where China just invited Argentina to join because the hosting nation has to possibly do that. And there'll be a followed up meeting in June as well. So it's foreign ministers meeting as a, and also heads of state meeting. At the same time, beyond sort of the European front, let's say, there's been big advances being made in other regions. You know, I think we should also look at multipolarity being built, particularly with the global South, thinking about in Africa, a Belt and Road project, but also the expansion more recently in Latin America, where I think uh, about 21 governments now have signed Belt and Road memorandums of understanding or have concrete projects. And with this wave that we're seeing this year and in recent moments of a sort of the progressive governments coming back to force and also sort of realigning or at least opening channels of communication through Belt and Roads, but through diplomatic channels with China, I think this is something we also have to pay attention to beyond the sort of European aspect of what will be happening on the multipolarity front. And I think there's some excitement for that. And maybe I'll just do a little plug here for one of the projects that Tricontinental just worked on and a publication on especially this relationship between Latin America and China, progressive governments. And it's a dossier that came out last year from the comrades in Argentina that put this out. And I think it gives us some reflection on how we can frame the sort of geopolitical climate in a bigger context. Right. Thank you for that. Let me turn to one other issue before we get to COVID. And that is, I'm also noticing in Chinese media that there is a denunciation just this week by the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, of U.S. warships again going through the Taiwan Straits. Again, even as the United States 
is engaged in what seems to be a proxy war in Ukraine. The U.S. keeps pushing, 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 pushing all the borders and buttons of China. This is the 50th anniversary of the Shanghai communique. The United States acknowledged and it's reaffirmed in two subsequent communiques that Taiwan is part of China, that the status of Taiwan will only be dictated or determined ultimately between the Chinese people on both sides of the Taiwan Straits. And yet you have U.S. warships going again into Chinese waters and in the Taiwan Straits. Again, how is this perceived in China? Is this being talked about or is it in the media? I think the, the comparison is an important one, not so much for, you know, the sense of an impending military conflict, but in terms of actually Chinese people having more and more of a clarity about the, the U.S. as what it is. And I think it's becoming more clear that this illusion of U.S. upholding its end of the bargain in terms of, you know, the issue of Taiwan or the idea of not supporting independence of Taiwan. I think you mentioned the denouncement by the PLA. But at the same time, just a few days ago on the State Department's website, there was also another provocation, and that's on their sort of, it's called the Taiwan fact sheet, changed some of the wording on there. And specifically removing this line about not supporting the dependence of Taiwan. And I think these are kind of multi-levels of provocations we've been seeing, especially ramping up in the last months. There were high-profile visits, some of them were canceled due to COVID reasons, et cetera. But at the same time, I think maybe this isn't so much a change in the essence of a relationship. You know, you mentioned the Shanghai Communique and then the Taiwan's Relations Act that followed. It was always supposed to be a slow removal of the supply of arms, for example, from the U.S. to Taiwan. And rather than eventually diminishing that, that's actually been increasing consistently and reaching, I think last year was over, or in 2020 was over $5 billion in arms that were sold by the U.S. to Taiwan. And so maybe there's a parallel here in the sense of the Chinese people understanding that keeping promises, you know, isn't necessarily what the U.S. foreign policy is best at doing, whether it's about, you know, no NATO expansion or, you know, not supplying of arms to Taiwan or the active support of sort of independence forces on the island. But I think that being said, even with the provocations and this kind of attempts, ultimately this has to be something, and I don't think China will allow for the terms or the timing and what the negotiations between Chinese people about the future of what will happen with Taiwan in terms of its integration into China. Yes. And, and just one quick follow-up question. When you think about the way the Western powers, the imperial powers, the colonizers interfered in China and what China calls the century of humiliation, the status of, say, Hong Kong or Taiwan or now Tibet or Xinjiang, I mean, these areas of where China is projecting, we are one country, we are uni a unified country to the extent that there's still some element of division, we're overcoming those divisions. This isn't a secondary topic for China's worldview and China's foreign policy. So I think it's important because Americans won't get it really. They won't get like why Taiwan is so important. They'll think of it simply as little Taiwan is threatened by the big mainland and not understand how this issue of previous dismemberment and division of the country and the healing of that is a top priority for Chinese authorities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're talking about the sort of national reunification. I was born in Hong Kong. My whole family's from Hong Kong. My mom's whole family is from Macau. So these are two places that experience really firsthand what the imperialist, you know, century of humiliation produced, which is dividing up the country into bits and pieces under different colonial rule. So I think this is where the historical look is absolutely important because even a lot of a uh, younger generation in Hong Kong who have grown up under the colonial rule that ended only in 1997 and don't have that longer perspective on the historical view, you know, and sometimes even romanticizing the colonial era as if Hong Kong, Taiwan, or Macau were not part of, you know, one China, which has actually been the case for really centuries. 
And I think one point I just want to make just on another aspect is the recent, let's say, escalation of these provocations, starting with, I think, the trade war. I mean, it really starts off with Obama's pivot to Asia, as you said, but uh, I think the Chinese people really started feeling it with the trade war, the escalations of the tensions. And also one word that's really appearing, especially for young people, is a recognition of the history of imperialism. And you actually see that particularly when young people growing up after, you know, and after the 90s generation, seeing what is happening now, the confrontation with the U.S., there's a whole lot of revival of this understanding of the suffering under imperialism. And I think that actually is quite interesting to see. And it also helps the understanding of sort of public opinion about what is happening with Russia and Ukraine. You know, it's a country of 1.4 billion people. The thoughts are varied. The debates are quite diverse. But there is a large camp, let's say, of young people who are sympathetic to Russia, understanding this historical legacy of Western imperialism, the actual historical role of NATO and what it's doing today. And, and there's a bit of a political awakening, let's say, around the sort of clarity of the U.S. and the West and, and the global dynamics. Very interesting. When you think about who, who were the countries that voted to abstain on the condemnation of Russia, which again doesn't mean they support the military operation. These are the countries of the global South. And China is really, yes, it's a communist country. Yes, it's the second biggest or perhaps soon the biggest economy in the world, but it's still really part of the global South. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that vote as much as numerically in the number of countries it represented was in the minority, but in terms of the population it represents, it was actually the majority of the world's population, almost 60% of the people living in the countries that did not at least condemn Russia because actually not interested in, in the policies of NATO or even have suffered around this U.S. unipolarity or NATO aggressions and war. So there is, I think, that's part of the reason why I brought up sort of where will it go with Latin America or Africa is this, there is a, a force around multipolarity driven by the global South that needs to be uh, paid attention to. And I think this is a moment of perhaps alignment of China with the forces of the global south with the countries of the global south to kind of forward that agenda of multipolarity, multilateralism, and finally having a power that since the fall of the Soviet Union hasn't been able to contest this sort of unilateral high horse that the U.S. has been on for far too long now, let's say. Let's turn to COVID. You're in China. There's COVID and the outbreak of COVID in China has been big news here it's undoubtedly had a big impact on you. You know, the U.S. just passed the million mark. One million human beings who died either from COVID or because they were had COVID and some other what's called comorbidity, meaning they were already in a vulnerable, weakened position. Maybe they were older. All of us know somebody, either family members or friends who have died and here you had China where China had no advance warning, none. I mean, that's where the virus is first detected in Wuhan. Wuhan is locked down. Trump calls it the China virus over and over and over again. But, you know, China, because of its actions, because of its very proactive actions, which were condemned as a form of dictatorship and authoritarianism by all in the United States in the beginning, China had, even though it has 1.4 billion people, at least after the first year, maybe 4,000 or under 5,000 deaths. While we have a million, we have a million deaths in the United States. But anyway, COVID is in China right now. There's been an outbreak. The government has a zero COVID policy. What's it like in China? What's it like for you? And again, because you're there and usually we're just reading headlines about what China is doing or what Chinese people think, we don't really know, but you are actually there. Let's just talk about it. Sure. I think, you know, my experience moving back to China has been very much marked by COVID. I moved back here in March of 2020. So that's just the time when the world was entering pandemic period and as China was starting to control and exit it. So I lived through actually pretty much two years of, of pretty privileged in the sense of not having to experience, you know, the fear and trauma of 
death and dying and, and cases around me in a relatively normal life, aside from, you know, wearing masks at public transportation or, or doing tests that were relatively accessible and affordable in order to travel, for example. But I am also based in Shanghai. In the last two months, we've seen, you know, outbreaks, not only here, but in several cities. I know that most of the media have been focusing on Shanghai, but there's been a couple of dozen cities that have undergone some form of lockdown in the last few months. And of course, zero COVID policy. You know, I think in the West, it's sort of now at this point, there's an acceptance, I don't know, maybe of the death or the acceptability of death from COVID. But at the same time, there's a, you know, interest in painting China's zero COVID policy as something quite dystopic or frightening. At the same time, you know, I think it's important for you to bring up the deaths because ultimately, what is your COVID for? It's about reducing deaths. But at the same time, I think why I want to bring up that it's not only in Shanghai, but in multiple cities, is that there is a national policy that's been implemented in various cities in different ways. And it's important to analyze, you know, why is it that Shanghai's supposedly four-day lockdown has now entered its second month and why there's been a lot of cases. It's also because the managements have been different in different cities. Shenzhen that entered lockdown last month of a city of 17 million people acted quite decisively and quickly and locked out the city for about a week and returned pretty much to normal since then. I think Shanghai took a different approach and it took on a slower approach. Actually, the municipal government has come out to say, you know, it erred in how slowly it reacted. It didn't predict how quickly Omicron would spread and a variety of things. I mean, we could go into if it's interesting, but I wanted to sort of mention a few factors of why the zero COVID has been essential, especially in a city like Shanghai. It has 25 million people officially living here. It could The numbers could be quite a bit larger with a kind of a temporary population as well. But it's a very old city in the sense that almost a quarter of the residents are over 60 years old. And in China, the vaccination rates of the elders has been quite low even though the national vaccination rate is quite high. Almost 90% of Chinese people have received two doses. But the elders, for a variety of reasons, partly because there wasn't, didn't seem to be a great need during the two years where there were no deaths and very few cases in the country to vaccinate the elders. There are some sort of maybe prejudices against the vaccine, especially for family members and elders who are worried that there'll be some you know, side effects from the vaccines. And maybe the program wasn't pushed enough for the elders. But in a city, in this city where I live in, a small percentage of people, about 20% of people who are above 80 have actually received the full doses or been boosted. So the reasons for this are really severe. You know, it's to protect the human lives, particularly the lives of the elders. And I'll, I'll just point to one fact, and I think it helps us remember. Nature Journal just published a study that is quite astounding, studying basically the spread patterns of Omicron. And if China were to stop its zero COVID policy and allow Omicron to spread, they predicted it would result in 1.6 million deaths in the next three months. Tings, I want to circle back to where we started with, again, a book that you helped write or did write, and I want to encourage everyone to read it. It's a short book. It's very important. It's a beautifully done book. It's about the eradication of extreme poverty in China. Part of the book reads this, and I think it's so important because it helps explain how this achievement came about. Here's an article from the People's Dispatch about your book, and I, I want to read from that article and get you to comment. The party cadres were mobilized earlier than the official adoption of the targeted program to go to remote areas to conduct surveys of the poor and be among them. The study notes in 2014, the CPC organized 800,000 of its cadres for that work. Three million members were sent to rural areas starting 2013 to live and help in the poverty alleviation programs. These cadres lived in the areas for one to three years away from their own families the study, meaning your study, notes that at least 1,800 of them lost their lives while performing these duties. I mean, the image of that is so powerful because it's not like the government gave the poor money. This was a complex mobilization by the party, but by big parts of the population to solve 
a problem that is so dominant, not only for China, but for the entire world. Anyway, this is my final question. I want you to just talk about the complexity that you document in your book. Thanks for that question. I mean, I had the privilege of actually going to visit, as I mentioned, and talk with some of these cadres and party members that were sent to actually live and work and be amongst the people. And I think that has a great impact also on sort of reconnecting or, or building trust amongst the people with the party, which, to be honest, during many years was not the main priority of the party, and especially through the rapid economic development phase. And so how it worked would be, I talked to this one cadre, Mr. Liu, he was matched with five households that were under a set of criteria listed as poor in the targeted poverty alleviation program alongside 100 million people. And the day-to-day work looks like, you know, knocking on someone's door or talking to someone's kid because they don't want to go to school or, you know, someone's aunt has fallen ill. How do you make sure that they get to see a doctor? It's, you know, come over because my door lock is not working. Basically, for anyone who's been a community organizer or been part of any political or social movement, know it's the grassroots base building work. And that is, I think, a big part of the success and really the, I think, the depth of a program like this. It's not in the amount of money spent. It's not necessarily even the number of roads that were built or the internet access that was provided. All of that is true, but it's the capacity to mobilize people and the resources to the people that are needing it and in a very targeted basis. And that was phenomenal to understand, you know, that every single one of these people in this 100 million person program were known had a a party member working with them, had a community around them, had sort of a plan of their exiting poverty based around their needs and their realities. And that is historic. And it's something that I think ought to be shared with the rest of the world, especially for socialists, for those of us who care about poverty as one of the core crises of humanity. And it's part of the reason of writing the study and going into, you know, let's say going down to the countryside and finding out more. All right, we're going to leave it there. The book is Serve the People, The Eradication of Extreme Poverty in China. Our guest, Ting Chak, was one of the principal authors of that study. Ting Chak, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Brian. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.